You are listening to the 3CR podcast of Encyclopedia. Encyclopedia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2 p.m. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. Good afternoon and welcome to the program uh, for this Sunday afternoon. Great and dreary outside with Nick's uh, update weather report that I definitely don't need to do. It's just some kind of force of habit. Um, this is in Psychedelia. We are a show that uh, covers all the uh, issues around drugs and have been doing now for four years. Woo! Happy birthday, us. Uh, yeah, four years. Every Sunday we have been talking about these issues and um, I was sort of, um, I don't know, reflecting on that a little bit and um, wondering... Have we done anything useful? Because it's hard to know from here, from inside the studio. I think we have. Um, but you One know. thing that I know that we've done that was useful is um, some of the people, uh, especially younger people in the activist community, have gone on to do interviews with the ABC um, and they found it very helpful to be here on In Psychedelia being comfortable in a studio, having a microphone in your face, it can, you know, it's fine for us, we've been doing it for four years, um, but, you know, public speaking is a thing that people get nervous around, and especially going live to air with a microphone in front of you, it can be quite nerve-wracking, so... I don't know, I think we've done more than that, but that's one thing that we've definitely well, done that people definitely, have given us feedback on. We've supported, this is just a, a very short list, certainly not exclusive, uh, uh, focusing on campaigns like High Alert, which was about uh, sniffer dogs on Chapel Street. Was it last year or the year before? It was in 2017. 2017. So, and, and just on yeah, that, that was a successful operation that basically shut down a harmful police operation within three weeks. Um, and yep. never to return. Uh, the North Richmond uh, Medically Supervised Injecting Room, which is going on and on and on. And uh, today is actually the day that the new room opens. So this is the new purpose-built centre uh, down in North Richmond. Uh, we're about one, nearly one year into the trial of a two-year trial. Uh, there has been uh, a lot of um, uh, discussions in the community. Um, we're hoping to speak to some people that have been part of those uh, those uh, discussions in the future. But that's a sort of, you know, this is the ongoing discussion. And I think this is the thing that doing it every week we have uh, been able to maintain a momentum, at least in the conversation, um, to talk about these things. Because there's other ones. Pill testing, uh, the Be Heard Not Harmed campaign was just launched mm-hmm. um, li- late last year. Uh, and that's uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policies pill testing campaign. But there is Pill Testing Australia. There's The Loop Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are advocates for this initiative all over the place. And also people saying that, no, 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 we'll encourage drug use if we do it. Can't do that. Welfare, which has popped up again. Oh, Welfare. my God. I couldn't believe <laughs> Believe seeing that, that that's back around again. So the campaign originally was about um, people uh, who are on um, welfare, on, on Centrelink benefits, uh, having to be mandatorily drug tested, piss tested. So you have to give up your, your urine uh, for these people to receive your, your benefits, i.e. The, the basic amount of money you need to be able to live. Um, and then if you fail, then you'll have coercive action placed against you. So it might be that they'll remove your ability to live anymore. Mm. I have money and what are you meant to do then? Like, uh, Will Tregoning from Unharm worked very hard on the campaign to, to knock that back uh, the last time it was proposed. Um, and I think Nev, that was uh, the progenitor of the High Alert campaign, was involved with that one as well. She was, yeah. And, you know, once again, that was successful at the time. But this is the thing. You have to be eternally vigilant. They just keep bringing this stuff back. You know, you know what? 
it's also Nev's birthday today. So happy oh. birthday, Nev <laughs> Um She's on, uh, at the moment, she works with, um, uh, uh, it's a women's organisation, and I think Women Homelessness and she, Women Access she, to... She uh, works, in, she does health. a lot of activist stuff she as is, well. Yeah, she, she's she was, yeah. great, great lady. And uh, yeah, welfare, uh, she, she definitely helped out with a lot. And it looks like we're going to have to do it again because uh, Morrison government is looking at, uh, at, at implementing that still. Um, we've talked a little bit about the, the other side of that, which is the, um, uh, the, the, the cash cards where you don't actually get money mm-hmm. uh, anymore, where you get these special things where the government has created public-private uh, partnerships with, uh, with businesses that I, I probably guess they have favour with. Um, and, uh, and then through those, you can only spend money at those businesses, which is just uh, oh, like the, the philosophy of money all falls apart then. So we're, we're literally controlling where people can spend their money. Um, and it's based on, uh, you know, those sorts of connections. It's just, so yeah. just a little bit more information about the welfare trial. So what yeah. this has come from is the Guardian put a freedom of information bid into uh, essentially get access to, uh, I think it's the ministerial brief for the new social services minister, Anne Rustin. And um, basically the drug testing trial is not a key priority. doesn't look like it's something that's going to happen in the first 12 months, but it's still kind of on the policy list is, right. is essentially... So, where we're at. Okay, so, so it's not a, a, it's a not a critical concern right now. But that's but where they we haven't to, officially scrapped it. That's where we need to get these things when they aren't a critical concern because that's when the government pushes them out into the media cycle, hoping that they can have a, yeah. a short window of which debate occurs, uh, and, and where they can that, and squash debate. That's right, and and sometimes and knowing some people in politics, some politicians, and you know, like some of the some of the better ones that are out there, even in the major parties. Some of the win you never see some of the wins that happen because they happen in the party room. Mm. You know, they're hard fought. People really knock heads. And, um, you know, like politicians can be pretty rubbish, right? You know, politics is a, you know, it can be a, a real dirty, nasty kind of game. But there are good people there. And sometimes they, they, they do work really hard to knock this stuff back. Yeah, behind, um, behind the scenes. Behind the scenes. And then we never we never see or hear about it, but what actually happened was a really fierce debate inside... But um, if you listen to this show, I'd like to think that you start to hear about these sorts of things because these are the sorts of things that we try to talk about with you. Um, the other one that's a, a, a massive one was um, uh, Fiona Patton's inquiry into drug law reform, uh, which started in, I think it was 2016, ran through 2017, was tabled 2018, made 50 recommendations, 650-page report, mm-hmm. um, we haven't heard a huge lot about it, but um, there is a petition um, that uh, you and I have got before the parliament at the moment, sponsored by LDP's David Limbrick, uh, to get the roadside drug testing uh, program and an inquiry into that, based uh, essentially off what the recommendation said. Recommendation 24 of this uh, of this report uh, was all based around what other jurisdictions around the world are doing uh, with roadside drug testing, especially those that have changed their drug laws, yeah. and um, uh, making sure that... They're focusing on impairment, making sure that they're focusing all this money, this expense, this attention on actually making our roads safer. Because if it's a witch hunt against people that use uh, drugs that are not, you know, acceptable by the by the status quo right now, it has nothing to do with impairment. The impaired part is a specific 
part of a drug experience. It's not the whole thing. Imagine, imagine if you had a drink, one drink on Friday night and on Monday morning you went for a, a drive and there is technology that can do this and you, uh, you got, you a piece of technology was presented that collects whatever, your saliva, your hair, something, and they found out that you were not drunk right now, but you had had a drink in the past seven days and that that was enough to make you lose your license for three months. That's what we're we, doing right now. We will come back more to the drug yeah. driving thing. Me and Nick, we, we could talk for a whole program just on Maybe that. Maybe we will. <laughs> and, and we will. I think in terms of that uh, drug law reform inquiry, um, the government's response at the time was, Ugh. let's say, lacklustre would be a didn't, generous didn't even description. even address one recommendation. Um, but that was coming into an election campaign period. Yes. So in some senses, given the, the politics of it all, it's somewhat understandable. Um, one of the other recommendations that has now been acted on, um, Fiona Patton put forward a motion to refer the issue of cannabis and cannabis criminalization to, uh, I think, the Legal and Social Affairs Committee. That inquiry will be kicking off soon and you mm. can write public submissions to that. The fact that the government supported it going to a committee is actually a really positive sign. And so if they, is, if they had no taste... Uh, I don't have the terms of reference in front of me, but basically they were restructured to say how do we how do we deal with the fact of organized crime and cannabis. So it wasn't like, yay, let's legalize cannabis, but it opens the door for that discussion. It's it's strategic, and this is um, what I'm infinitely pleased with Fiona Patton for. Uh, other politician politicians do it well as well, but I've, I've, I mean I'm personal friends with Fiona as well, so I'll just yeah. you know disclaimer there. Um, and uh, the way that she approaches things is, is highly strategic. I think some people are like, no, well, there's, there's the answer. Why don't you just go straight to the answer? But they're not seeing that you can get closer to it if you take steps along the way to bring more people on board, that you have to understand the political process is, yeah. is about, uh, it, ultimately, it's about winning people over. It's about yeah, you've got to get You've got to get the win yeah. at the end of the day. So, like, if you need to compromise, well, that's the art of politics, yeah. really. But I think what was interesting yeah. about the vote on that motion, though, just quickly, is that um, I think only 11 people voted against it, and that's... Mm. The sum of the coalition opposition in the legislative council, which right. means that it had. Uh, I'm, oh, actually, I'm not 100% sure about um, Borman, but everybody else on the crossbench supported it, including Stuart Grimley, who was a serving police officer until um, November last year. He right. was a very recently serving um, Victoria police officer, and he had actually attended a fire that. Um, my boss, David Limbrick, raised uh, the point of like these fires that sometimes happen in grow houses as, as one of the things that the, you know, uh, organized crime and prohibition adds to. And Stuart Grimley was actually at that fire. Right. You know, and he talked about right. the fact that like some of the people that go to prison that are sitting on these crop houses, they're, they're vulnerable and exploited people. They're yeah. not actually the, the, the criminals. Like they, they're just cutouts, you know, they're, they're like, yeah, they're just somebody who has a gambling debt or some other issue that can be leveraged into, yeah, you know, basically being the fall guy. And I mean, I mean, really, we wouldn't have these problems if there were specific uh, regulations on how you actually grow cannabis, and that we had auditing of that. And we, you know, I mean, all the things that people kind of sigh and roll their eyes at, but it's it's actually useful to have in a society where we're like, okay, we can sort of trust what's going on. Well, at the moment, the drug trade doesn't not exist because of prohibition. It exists in the most ridiculous and absurd sense that it can exist. Um, well, if we were to take some control of it, take some responsibility of it, except that some people do take drugs 
take some responsibility of the fact that people do have problems with drugs, that not everybody does, that we can actually work towards solving these problems uh, in, a, in a more cohesive way if we focus on what's actually a problem rather than creating problems that didn't exist, then maybe, you know, we'd all be better, a little better off. Okay, so that is our extended intro for our first birthday uh, episode. So it gives you a bit of a sense of what we do here. We tell the other side of the drug war. Um, Do we have time for a bit of news, Nick? Uh, Actually, let's see if we can... We'll see if we can do some news at the end because we've got some audio from Support Don't Punish, uh, which was uh, 26th of June, Wednesday uh, Wednesday the 26th of June. A number of speakers, Peter Wern, uh, Kate Sear from uh, Monash... Dr. Kate Sear, I should say, from Monash University. She's a a, a law expert, talks on drug issues a lot. Um, Shauna, who is uh, somebody who uses drugs, also uh, trans and has a few... um, um, uh, just just lived experience uh, tales to tell, and um, I've forgotten who else was there. Another person on the Peter, the Peter Wern, Greg Denham, Greg, De- oh, Greg Denham, yes, Kate Sia, Kate Sia. I think that's the lot. Yeah. Um, might have forgotten somebody, but they were all at support. Don't punish. Uh, the focus this year on uh, on uh, how. Um, how the justice system affects people who use drugs and how it can be uh, uh, problematic in ways that are unexpected, non-intended, unintended uh, results. Uh, So this is it. This is in Psychedelia on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. My name's Peter Wern. I'm the uh, chair of the Yarra Drug and Health Forum. And uh, for the last 45 years, I've worked with, uh, as I like to say, naughty young people. So young people that have been on the wrong side of the war. I started working in St Kilda as an outreach worker in the 1970s. And when I got down to St Kilda, I really got there by following young people who were in the early iteration of -of out-of-home care. So they were kids that had been taken away from their families for their own protection. And when I was doing that work, what you probably don't know is that if you were being raped, abused, assaulted in the family home as a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old, where did the state put you? They locked you in a youth prison for your own protection. So Parkville Youth Justice Centre, which used to be called Tarana, was a youth prison. And if you were a kid that was at risk and they had nowhere they could put you safely, they put you in prison. So part of Tirana was for young people that were being criminally assaulted in their own home and criminally neglected. And the other part was for young offenders. But the majority of people that were in that, in that facility were meant to be there for their own protection. I won't go through the brutalisation, the sexual assaults, the bashings and the rapes, And that was by staff in that facility that were committed against those young people. And the Royal Commission into Institutionalised Violence has had a documentation of how these kids were treated. But these kids, no one cared about them. When I met them on the streets of St Kilda, when I followed them out of their so-called caring facilities, they were prostituting and using heroin. So there were 14, 15, 16-year-olds having anonymous sex with 50 to 60 different older men every week to pay for their heroin, which cost $75 for a street grand that was about 8 to 10% pure. The price of heroin virtually hasn't changed in 35, 37 years. 
So my point today is this. The drug and alcohol treatment services, of which I've worked in for now over 25 years, are slowly being co-opted into the justice system. And drug and alcohol treatment is being seen as a justice issue and not a human right. The young people in that system haven't changed in characteristic or in, or in a demographic for decades. They are, they are marked by three or four markers. One, they are essentially coming from the lower socioeconomic parts of our community. Two, they are often a minority group, new arrivals, what we used to call when I was a young man, new Australians, refugees, migrants, immigrants. And the one figure that is most disgusting, I don't think we've got an Indigenous spokesperson here today, have we? Is that in our current justice system, it never drops below 15 to 18% of the population of our prison system being Indigenous. And that has never dropped in the last 30 years, to my knowledge. So currently, in the state prison system for young people, 18% of the young people in that system are Indigenous and, that, and their numbers in our population only represent about 5%, 45 to 5% in Victoria. And the other thing that we're doing is we're building bigger and better prisons, one at a place called Cherry Creek, which will just about double the size and double the capacity of the youth justice prison system. And I can guarantee you that will be full within six months of it being built. So as Greg pointed out before, we are increasingly incarcerating more and more people for less and less serious crime. And the main crime that young people get incarcerated for that I can see as being of the wrong culture, the wrong colour and the wrong socioeconomic group. And the drug laws enhance the ability of the state to take away the rights of young people. So in closing, you're a young person, you're nine years of age, you're seven years of age, and every night you experience a monster walking up and down the hallway outside your bedroom. And you never know when that monster's going to walk through your door and anally rape you. And that goes on for your whole childhood. And no one helps. No one helps. You live in that horror your whole childhood. And when you get the ability to get away, when you get the ability to get away, you are put back into a system that does even more harm than was being done to you in your home. And that's what we call justice in the estate for these kids. My dear friend Bernie Geary, when, when he was the Children's Commissioner of Victoria, wrote a report on the 11 most vulnerable young people in the state. So they had all these um, category one incidents in their life over the course of the year. And I'll tell you what, you could not read this report without weeping. When you looked at the failure of the state to intervene, and care for these poor children who could not be looked after by anyone else. And the state was a worse parent than the most abusive parent that you, that you could meet. And many of these young people found the only way to emotionally regulate their fear and their anxiety and their trauma was through drugs. And by using illicit drugs, they were punished even more. So I'll just leave you with that. It's not a pretty message. But we discriminate against young people 
in such a disgusting way. The most vulnerable are not considered worthy of our kindness. They're not considered worthy of our compassion. And they certainly aren't considered worthy of being looked after or therapeutically responded to. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Um, <coughs> we'll move on uh, to Sione. Yep, Sione. Uh, Sione is the CEO of Harmonix uh, Victoria. Cool. And uh, come from an interesting background in terms of the work that Harmonix Victoria does. I know that they're involved in a lot of activities as a peer-based organisation. So I'll hand it over to you. Thanks, Thanks Greg. Um, and thank you, Peter, for kicking off. Um, I suppose, uh, First of all, I think I'd, I'd like to um, acknowledge the traditional owners of the um, land that we're meeting on today and um, remember that um, traditional owners uh, probably did not cede sovereignty. Um, and I think that that's particularly important because, as Peter pointed out, we um, don't have an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person speaking today, although I think um, uh, we have intended to, but that it fell through. Um, HRVEC, uh, as Greg pointed out, is um, a peer-based organisation. Uh, so what that basically means is, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure most of the people sitting here do know this, but the people who work for HRVEC uh, are people who use drugs. Um, certainly have got a, an experience of, uh, a life experience of using drugs. Uh, and that's a really important uh, component of, of today. Uh, because as uh, Pete's already pointed out a little bit, um, the people who are the uh, ultimate victims of the war on drugs are, are generally uh, people who use and inject drugs. and. Um, very often we hear that the war on drugs has been, um, has been waged um, to rid the world of the scourge of drugs um, and that it's, it's about uh, making the world safe for people. Uh, whereas what we see day to day uh, is that um, the war on drugs makes things more unsafe for us. Um, the significance of Support Don't Punish Day has already been uh, discussed a little bit. Um, but as Greg point, uh, said earlier on, it's an inversion of the, uh, anti the UN Anti-Trafficking Day that for a long time was used as a day by um, certain countries in the world to show off really how hard on, um, how tough on drugs they were. Um, so um, China, for instance, would have televised in public hanging hangings of people uh, who had been um, caught using drugs. Saudi Arabia was similar. Um, right now, uh, we have a situation in the Philippines, which I'm sure you all know about, in which uh, people who use drugs um, are being murdered every day. Um, that has spread to Bangladesh, and there is absolutely almost no, um, uh, almost no international sanction uh, on those countries who are um, murdering people for uh, the crime of either dealing or, or using drugs. Very often. Um, uh, the idea of dealing drugs and drug dealers being uh, the bad people are, is what uh, governments use to justify, um, justify continuing um, wars on drugs. So when we, talk about, um, when we talk about the impact on people who use drugs, often when we're talking to uh, authorities and to um, uh, law enforcement, they talk about the fact that we still need to get rid of drug dealers. But what we know is that people who use drugs are drug dealers, generally speaking. Uh, certainly um, at pretty well every level, um, and that goes right up to uh, higher levels. So um, generally speaking, even um, wars on drugs that's like in Australia that continue and that are focused on so-called drug dealers are actually still uh, focused on people who use drugs. 
Um, the wars in, um, the frustrating thing about the war on drugs in the Philippines and Bangladesh at the moment is it's really just another step uh, along the path. Um, there was a similar um, war on drugs in Thailand not that long ago. And as I mentioned, there are certain countries around the world who still um, murder people, put people into, and put people into, um, put people into prisons for drug use, essentially. Um, and even though, and while these are fairly obvious, horrific um, components of the war on drugs, I think that it's really important to understand that there are other ways in which our community are punished continually. And Peter uh, touched on it a little bit. Uh, he talked about some of these ways um, that we are continually punished for using drugs, even if uh, we're not necessarily dragged out of our homes and uh, murdered in Australia. That does happen occasionally, but not as often as um, some, of the, some of the other countries I've been talking about. But nevertheless, we are still um, done violence to, essentially. We're stigmatised and denied employment uh, as drug users. We're often denied access to healthcare and to uh, adequate justice. Um, and uh, we're often denied uh, access to housing and to the social safety net by the law. So it's, a, it's uh, you know, we're literally, uh, there are people who are literally urine tested um, to see if they're able to stay in their social housing. Uh, which is a, another form of violence and it might not, might not be about putting people in prison or murdering them, it's uh, just uh, it's, um, a very similar um, punishment mentality. And the people who are most, and I guess what I wanted to just um, ensure that we didn't forget today, but Peter has done, and done that already I think very well, is to ensure that we understand and know that the people who are most powerless and vulnerable in our society are the people who are most um, affected by this as well, and who are most unable to fight back. Uh, to be honest, for a lot of people that I've worked with um, and known over time, it's not surprising that some of the people who I work with and have known and uh, lived with at the very pointy end of these issues no longer really recognise a social contract. They don't actually think they owe the, the world has been particularly nasty to them, and they don't necessarily think that they owe the world anything any longer. And it's a little bit like a, an escalating war where people um, less. Um, over time less and less identify with their um, surroundings and unfortunately we're seeing something play out right now in Melbourne and at least two or three suburbs around Melbourne um, where people are um, so fed up with things that they see uh, as being invasions in their neighbourhood that they seem to have lost all compassion and capacity to understand that uh, there are people who are worse off than them and who have a much harder life than them and are not necessarily enjoying dying in the street, using on the street, having arguments and violent episodes on the street. Um, and there are social media, um, uh, there are groups of people and uh, people meeting through social media and in the real world to uh, like literally share uh, information on how to uh, assault people uh, in a way that they think that they won't uh, be able to be um, followed up on, so that might include if you see someone sh um, mixing up some drugs in public, throwing water over it or throwing flour over the person who's um, trying to use in public without any kind of understanding. This person is probably doing that because they have literally no other option. Um, and so uh, I, I suppose what I, I just wanted to underline and reiterate is that it feels to me sometimes like we're getting further and further away from the ideal of supporting and not punishing people who use drugs. Uh, and unfortunately that stoked 
uh, by people who sometimes are actually quite well-meaning, um, people who talk about the injecting room, talk about, oh, we still want to have an injecting room, but we just don't want it there. We literally want to marginalise people by putting them into an industrial zone, so they're not in my uh, neighbourhood. And those people probably feel very um, justified in doing that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, essentially all they're doing is, as I don't, probably don't need to tell people in this room, they're reinforcing the power dynamics and the um, inequality that exists in this relationship already. Uh, so today, um, for me, support don't punish really uh, is important as a day because, it, um, because I think we need to think beyond just incarceration uh, and actually think about the ways that people are punished day to day to day um, in, in our society. And, uh, people who use drugs are a wide range of people. I've talked about, obviously, the very uh, people at the pointy end. Um, but for, um, um, but for, for luck, you know, any one of us might end up in a situation where we're having to do a urine test to keep our um, housing. And I think for all of us, that should be kind of alarming. Thanks, uh, Sione. Um, I'd like to introduce Kate. Kate's here from... Uh, Monash University, who's an academic uh, and a practicing lawyer. And uh, Kate and I have been touching bases a lot today because I was at an event that she ran this morning, and as was Sione. So um, thanks uh, for coming along, Kate. And um, could you just uh, say a few words, please? Yeah, thanks, Greg. Thank you, Peter. And thanks, Sione. Sione and thanks to the organisers for. Um for inviting me. I, I wanted to say a few words that really um, track very neatly, I think, off the back of what both of you have had to say, which I fully endorse um, all of your concerns and comments. And that is that I wanted just to talk a little bit about a kind of growing discourse in the um, drug space, which involves um, kind of recourse to human rights as a possible solution, or even maybe a panacea to the to, to the situation that we've seen for the last several several decades. Um, I'm kind of interested in these ideas because I've been doing some research over a number of years looking at um, how alcohol and other drug issues play out in the law and I've become especially interested in the way in which human rights ideas have been and, and might be sort of mobilised to, to try and change things or to move away from the punitive approach. And so I just wanted to say sort of by way of um, background that a few years ago, and this is something that Greg and Sioni and Peter and others um, who were with me today have already heard me talk about, but um, a few years ago I started a major research project where I was looking at drug law in Canada and Australia. And one of the things that I found undertaking that research, which I thought was really interesting, um, and you're probably aware of this already, is that Canada is quite unique and quite different to Australia in a number of ways. Um, mainly because Canada has a charter of human rights and freedoms that we don't have anything like an equivalent to here. We have a charter in Victoria, as you might know, but it operates in a very different way to the Canadian one, and it's not able to be mobilised in the same kind of way, or it doesn't work in quite the same way. Um, and what was interesting about, what's interesting about Canada is that for a number of years, the Canadians um, working in this space have mobilised that charter to make legal arguments to try and push back against prohibition and to try and secure basic, really fundamental services for people. And um, there have been a number of really major court cases that have dealt with this. So I'll just mention two of them briefly. One of them um, you've probably heard of already, um, and that's the Insight case that was decided in 2011. And this was a really major case in Canada 
where essentially the federal government wanted to close down the supervised injecting centre, which is known as Insight, based in the downtown east side of um, Vancouver. They wanted to close down that site and um, a number of people came together in a kind of coalition and based on human rights arguments argued that that facility needed to stay open and they were successful and as a result the facility has stayed open and continued to operate since. And then in 2014 there was another really major and important case where, um, which basically involved questions of the right to access of to access prescribed heroin assisted treatment or HAT. And um, again, that was a case that was run on human rights grounds and um, successfully, there was a successful constitutional challenge and the end result of that was that people in Canada could access heroin assisted treatment. And so these kind of developments have got me thinking a lot about whether um, human rights arguments or a human rights charter um, and better human rights protections might be a kind of solution to the continued war on drugs. Um, and this is not just um, something that I say because of what's going on in Canada, but there does seem to me to be a kind of global movement around human rights and a growing discourse um, or recourse to human rights in this space. So just a few uh, quick examples. Um, you might know that just a few months ago there was a really landmark consensus statement released by the heads of all of the 31 um, agencies of the United Nations where they called for decriminalisation of drugs and reforms that were based on evidence and on human rights. So they um, obviously think that human rights is some, something that we should turn to as a kind of framework to help guide us out of this um, long troubled history. And references to human rights appear in other documents too. There's just recently been um, a set of guidelines released by the UNDP, the International Guidelines on Human Rights and Drug Policy, which again, uh, uh, call for human rights-based approaches to drugs. Um, but there's a couple of things I just wanted to mention about that because I do feel like this is a direction in which we're heading. Um, there's a kind of growing discourse about it, but it, it concerns me for a couple of reasons. The first one is that there's not actually a lot of clarity in these um, motherhood statements or um, kind of ambit um, or general references to human rights about what human rights really means and, and how it would actually play out in practice. Um, the second thing is to say that even though a country like Canada, we might look to Canada and think that what's going on there is really um, impressive and important, we can look to, to them as a kind of leader in this space, we have to temper that with the fact that there's a massive overdose crisis unfolding in Canada at the moment. Um, something like 11,000 people have died of drug overdose in Canada in the last three years. I was recently in Canada for a summit about that and we were reminded that 11 people are dying every day in Canada. Um, so it's, you know, to say it's a sobering statistic would be a, a, an absolute understatement. Um, and so it got me thinking that if human rights can't be mobilised in Canada of all places that do have this culture of human rights that differs to us. If it can't be mobilised to prevent a shocking tragedy that is totally pre uh, preventable, then um, what use of human rights? Are human rights really going to save us? And that's kind of the point that I um, increasingly uh, find myself coming to. The other thing I just wanted to say briefly, and Peter, you touched upon this um, a bit, and so did you, Sioni, is that 
I think a second key challenge for um, this kind of recourse to human rights as a potential saviour or the framework that we should be turning to to get us out of the war on drugs is a really important point, and that is that traditionally people who use drugs haven't been thought of as human. Um, they, there's a lot of research to suggest that they've been thought of as less than fully human. And what, what I mean by that is things like um, people being irrational, disordered, dysfunctional, chaotic, compulsive, and making decisions which are disordered and um, impossible to explain. And in that sense, drug use has long been said, seen as kind of the opposite of what it means to be fully or properly um, human. And I've done a bit of research on this, and it does play out, um, I think, and it does hold, especially here in Victoria, where we have a human rights charter, when we see how that charter has been used in the past, um, often it is used in ways that, um, rather than helping people in ways that we might see, we, we might all hope for, helping, move, helping us move away from a kind of punitive approach, what it often does is, um, it kind of plays out in a way whereby uh, governments say, well, if we introduce laws, they should be laws that um, help people become more properly human, uh, become better kinds of people. And what that means is um, people who don't use drugs. And so rights end up being kind of utilised to justify basic denials or basic um, denials of things like due process, sometimes to justify forced drug treatment. Um, and Peter, you mentioned the shift from um, uh, kind of seeing uh, the, uh, kind of move into drug treatment as a justice system initiative, and I think that's right. Um, all of this is designed apparently to fix people who apparently um, shouldn't, uh, don't know better. And so the idea becomes one in which um, rather than human rights being a bulwark or a kind of obstacle to government power being exercised over people, um, it becomes a justification or the kind of rationale for some of this stuff. So that the worst kinds of punishment and things like forced treatment become appropriate not in spite of human rights but actually because of human rights and because of how we think about um, what it means to be human. Um, so I just wanted to, I mean it's a kind of depressing point in which to leave it but I think it's an important message in my view anyway because there is this growing enthusiasm about um, human rights as a panacea, as a kind of um, logic that we can mobilise to prevent punitive approaches. And in my view, that is possible, but what it requires is advocacy and um, sort of a lot of work to ensure that what we do is insert into the public conversation a discussion about other ways of being human and that people who use drugs are human too, they are adequately, properly, um, appropriately human, and, um, and that in, in that sense they have rights that are equal to everybody else and that need to be um, both recognised and acknowledged in, in a range of ways. And I'll leave it there. I'd start off by uh, just addressing that point before going into a lot of other things I've got to say. Yeah, a lot of us have um, unstructured lives and routines. There's also a lot of homelessness or unstable housing and all, all sorts of things. And there's, there's often a time, not, not every day usually, but sometimes where you know, there's, there's the need to have the after hours service because um, otherwise 
for various reasons not been able to get uh, fits pick them up uh, during the the business hours there's been a um, in the local area around there a um, a local panic being whipped up by uh, Stephen Jolly, a member of the Yarra Council, is fond of a bit of self-promotion and he's been, with a small number of people, been holding meetings and uh, whipping up fear because they have no rational argument. And um, this closure of the machine, apparently, from what I'd found out, because I've not found it out myself, I hadn't needed to approach it after hours, was uh, directions came to uh, NRCH from, I think, D DHS or the Minister's Office um, in response to the panic. Some people, those who've been uh, pushing for it to be closed, uh, have some belief that it might uh, get more people or of us into the door of the <laughs> injecting room, which I think that's really doomed to fail. Um, there's, you know, it's certainly lots lots going in there, but there's, there's all kinds of reasons why sometimes still uh, there'll be some people who may use in the street rather than going into the centre. There's, um, yeah, there's, uh, the, the centre um, advises that, um, you know, it's not available for access to people who are bailed or paroled or on some uh, restriction of liberty in the justice system and where that condition might say to uh, not access the centre or not to use drugs or not to be in the area. Um, there's, you know, of course those who, you know, turn up in the area when it's when it's closed and then we'll just, you know, there's always the need to, you know, have it right away or shortly after, um, after getting on, as it's called. Um, and then um, sometimes where, you know, you might have done this with friends where there might be two people or three people they might have um, say pool, pooled funds to uh, to uh, go get on and then I guess you know it's just done that when come to uh, divide it or share it just to sort of you know sort it out there and then somewhere in the street um, yeah uh, though it's uh, close to the street uh, it's Occasionally, I think, um, because it's far enough from the street, there'll be, there'll be times when, you know, sometimes it's just a little bit out of the way and it's, you know, sometimes, you know, for various reasons, might not want to, you know, go up there. Like, it's five, five, ten minute, five or ten minutes walk up from the main street and, um, you know, certainly if you don't want to wait that long or you're not, not well or... Um, you know, sometimes, you know, if you've got a few things to get around with because of being homelessness or if sleep might not want to, you know, wander around that far and just um, straight away go have it, yeah. Um, I got told that, um, you know, certainly there was uh, from somebody associated with the centre that Occasionally in the street when there are increases in uh, high visibility police activity that there has been on some days a reduction in uh, people coming to the centre because, um, you know, the various reasons you just um, concerned to, uh, to run the gauntlet getting there, especially if, um, yeah, if you might have some kind of um, uh, justice order 
where you know you're not meant to be there, and if the police decide, if police in the street for other reasons decide to uh, check you out or stop you, um, and um, I'd have thought that if there, if it was closer to the main street, there might be it might be a bit easier to go, and there might be more uh, coming in there, but. Yeah, if I was to go into this thing about the fear of police, I guess there's a bigger thing as well, and it's been mentioned by, who was, what was your name again? Kate. Kate, about, we really, there's a Charter of Rights here, but Australia really doesn't have a Bill of Rights, and there are fair, but police have fairly low thresholds to cross if they want to uh, stop, search, or question people. And... Um, you know, and in some cases, um, you know, for example, if they want to say strip search the person, and they might not um, be able to, might not from the encounter on the street or from what they've seen or or know, be able to cross that threshold. They may sometimes. It's it's often that they will uh, use an arrest, including uh, transport to a police station, when other alternatives might be available, because um, that then. Act gives them access to uh, more extended um, uh, search powers, including like to strip search, etc. which, you know, there's a fairly, otherwise there's a fairly, there's a threshold to cross, but that threshold is lowered once somebody has been uh, arrested and uh, transported to the police station. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, what else matters to us? The state budget came out this this year. There's been uh, there's a lot more money uh, allocated. Around two billion in the state budget was allocated to do with prison expansion and new prisons. But um, still, for many, there's um, issues around the costs of uh, certain types of treatment, like particularly treatments for uh, opioid use, like uh, methadone or others. And not only the costs of some of these treatments, but uh, the delays or wait times to access them. Um, I guess the role of uh, poverty when it comes and the uh, wait times for um, and the, I guess, lack of, you know, faster access to secure housing. There are countries overseas where we got where they pursue what's called a housing first approach because, um, which I agree with, and from my experience I feel is something that they need to have here and in other parts of Australia because, you know, expecting, I guess, people to fix up other issues is, you know, can be almost doomed to fail, you know, if they have, if you don't have uh, secure uh, housing. When it was mentioned by um, one of the earlier speakers about the, the out-of-proportion rate of the population of uh, Indigenous uh, people and young people and juveniles going into incarceration, um, certainly there's probably uh, that disproportionate um, rate of when it comes to uh, using and so on of the role of uh, 
of poverty, as been said before, most most usually would come from the low or very low socioeconomic uh, background status. Now I'm transgender, and in the from those that be LGBTIQA, etc. Um, a lot of young people um, from our background, and this is my own too, um, get uh, rejection from our family, and this can you know, precipitate uh, right into uh, homelessness. Uh, it happened with myself, uh, though I came from, and it was quite an experience to get through when I was young, and sort of never really got over or through it. And, you know, and this is this can be anywhere. I come from, it would be said, like a higher socioeconomic uh, family uh, background. So then we were thrust into, I guess, um, you know, using transitional or emergency uh, housing and then just otherwise you, you can't survive on Centrelink and you find just other ways to try to survive. Um, and for me, um, certainly, I don't know that it can be said, but I don't know that I want to say the case for most, certainly for many anyway, um, in that, you know, doing things for survival, that included, in my case, and a lot of others I've known, uh, sex working, including uh, uh, at times street base, and that was a, the first time I'd seen Melbourne uh, like that, probably over 10 something years ago. Um, and the role, the how this connects up with the justice system, there's a whole range of survival type activity that is um, fairly criminalised in um, you know some to all states of Australia um, the law here on uh, sex working is that um, in the street it's um, you know just illegal in New South Wales it's um, generally not illegal but there are a number of uh, restrictions around it um, but <clears throat> the justice system and how we see like you know you, you see like you're under siege when you're on the margins is you know through various law and order beat ups they've the thresholds have been lowered quite a lot for the police to uh, do denial of uh, bail um, in well, here they have the, the bail justice system um, in New South Wales, the state where I live. Now, um, the, they would have a system where um, you know, they can say, if the police deny bail, decide to deny bail, then you have, the person has to be brought before court as soon as possible. But with the powers to uh, detain someone for several hours before... Um, you know, processing the uh, charge and or deciding on the bail question, um, that time can really be strung out. So you can have somebody who's... This happened to me. I'd be picked up, say, 10.30 in the morning. The process strung along till, you know, 3 or 4 o'clock, and then you found out, oh, it's too late to uh, go up to court. Um, I was proposed uh, quite an unreasonable... Uh, at the outset, they demanded uh, an everyday uh, reporting. And, I just said, and then they come back to me and said, you'd have the three days a week uh, reporting, but they not be consecutive days. And I said, no. And I said, well, 
then you'll just have to go away for the night and then so that happened and um, that that years ago affected me a bit uh, because in our case and this is in all states of Australia despite that some have department policy about detaining according to the gender of identity um, transgender those of us we are usually um, placed according to um, you know, in a, in a nutshell, our, our body, rather than our gender of identity, which means either having to, you know, in my case, I just took a uh, solitary option for that night, or otherwise um, the risks of, you know, sexual abuse um, within the system. Um, ultimately, the morning after, when this, uh, when that case of mine came before, um, local court there, which is analogous to the Magistrates Court in Victoria, um, I obtained an unconditional bail. And um, later on, I was ultimately never convicted of the uh, offences I'd been charged with, rather dealt with under, I don't know what they say it is here, but under a provision where I was diverted or discharged and for several months to do with a mental health issue. Um, but yeah, just to think that I had I had gone through all of that, and at, at the time this happened, it was in the context of uh, a recent, you know, talking about you know the bail laws and so on. And I think, um, oh yeah, okay. What, what else can I, I can just try and find? Bring in something. Ah, yes, in, the, in lived experience and the law, I guess, in, in another, on another occasion, and this is to do with where, though, we might have, though there might be certain rights that people have, for us, those rights are not followed. In, in another time, I was, uh, I'd left home and I was um, travelling to um, the court where I was due, and um, on the way there, I'd... Um, Used and I'd um, I'd become unconscious and been taken to the emergency department, and um, with the with the thing about the medical confidentiality and law, was I obtained in the I got in the emergency department the medical certificate and had it sent over. It described simply that I was like unfit for duty because of you know unspe unspecified medical issue. But where you know, stigma means that some, you know, even in the system your rights are not uh, upheld is that uh, over at the uh, court they were inquiring about how it was going and um, apparently the, um, the prosecutor had then that day had arranged for the officer in charge of the case to uh, contact the hospital where I had been and then uh, yeah he found out what it was there for, so then I didn't, you know, my medical confidentiality rights were just like thrown in the bin. And then not only that, when it, when they were back in the court, um, they, they stated in the open court what had happened to me. That morning I didn't have a lawyer, although I later came to have a lawyer in the matter. And then when I did come later to have the lawyer, the legally, the legal aid funded lawyer who was in a private practice, they were, reluctant to do anything really to agitate my 
you know, concerns that about you know the violation that I'd felt from the uh, the breach of my um, rights of medical confidentiality, and uh, I was pretty determined in um, you know in the conference that I'd had, but yeah, they just really it just really felt they didn't care. It's just like that they you know you, there can be rights, but often in practice. The rights can be bypassed or, or ignored, and often if you if you can't even get, say, a lawyer who you know really agitate on your behalf for those rights, then sometimes with stigma, the question of rights may be redundant. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. And that final speaker there was Shauna uh, speaking at Support Don't Punish, uh, which was held at Kensington, Kensington Town Hall on the 26th of June last month, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, other speakers there were Sione uh, Crawford from Harm Reduction Victoria, Executive Officer there, Dr Kate Siar, who is uh, expert in law uh, with uh, Monash, uh, Peter Wern, uh, who has been with YSA, has been with a number of organisations of the year, uh, uh, sorry, in the past, um, not currently with any of those, but um, certainly an advocate for reform and hosted by Greg Denham from the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, uh, which launched their new website at the event, and you can check that out, leapaustralia.net.au, uh, where you can uh, get involved with them, and especially if you know anybody involved with law enforcement, get them to get involved, especially people in law, well, I mean, obviously, people in law enforcement that understand that the war on drugs has not worked, that it's an expensive failure, uh, that it's not a successful justice initiative, and we need change. Leap at uh, leapaustralia.net.au uh, here with Ash in the studio also just wanted to quickly say Freedom of Species uh, meant to say thank you to Freedom of Species who were on 1 till 2pm just before the show uh, this afternoon uh, they're back 1pm next week and uh, following this show is Queering the Air and you can uh, find out more about all of the programs on 3CR by going to the website 3cr.org.au and um, we've just had our Radiothon as well. So if, uh, if you want to donate to help keep the radio station uh, on the air, is the number still up there? Uh, uh, the website's the best place. Yeah, go, is... go to the website or go to our Facebook page. We've just posted a link yep. through to where you can donate to help keep in psychedelia on the air. Uh, and thank you very much uh, to everybody uh, that has helped us over the past four years, with today being our fourth uh, birthday. Uh, technically, it was on Friday, but that's because the years don't match up with the same days every year, as you know, um, because you're uh, familiar with the progression of time. Congratulations, citizen. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week uh, from 2 o'clock. We have uh, more from uh, Leap. Um, and uh, we've got so much news that we didn't have time for, but I just wanted to say four years of community radio and doing other things in the activist space, some Something that I have found is that there's a lot of support. There's a lot of support from academia, from professionals, from people in the community. A lot of people know that this needs to happen um, and we need your support to keep it going. Exactly. And uh, coming up next, as Ash said, uh, Queering the Air with Jane Green, a sex worker rights activist with Vixen Collective, Miriam Khalil, contemporary artist, uh, Tarnine Honest Williams, writer and organiser for Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, and Laura McLean, union organiser and queer anti-fascist on Queering the Air. See ya. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear in Psychedelia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.